0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to RQM Plus Live number 56, IBDR, a Notified Body Perspective. Uh, my name is Stephen Bernacki, uh, Marketing Principal with RQM Plus, and before we jump in uh, today's panel discussion, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our company and introduce today's panelists, uh, one of whom is a very special guest, not from RQM Plus, who are very grateful is with us. Um, To start, RQM Plus is the largest international provider of regulatory quality and clinical consulting services for medical device and diagnostics manufacturers. And this is RQM Plus Live, our interactive live show uh, that gives you access to seasoned leaders and experts who answer your questions about industry topics and challenges. If you have any questions today, and we definitely hope that you do, please type them in and submit them using the questions area in the GoToWebinar interface. So on to our three panelists. First up is Marta Carnielli, IVD Technical Director of TU- at TUV Sud. In Marta's role, she's responsible for gathering and distributing regulatory information in the IVD field, uh, represents TUV Sud in relevant regulatory com- committees and conferences, and supports management and technical experts with the interpretation of regulatory requirements. Uh, she is also the co-chair of the IVD Notified Bodies Working Group. Uh, so, Marta, thank you for being a guest on RQM Plus Live today. Uh, next up we have yeah. next up is Carlos Galamba, uh, Vice President of IVD Intelligence and Innovation at RQM Plus. Carlos joined RQM Plus in September 2021 after seven years with BSI, where he was responsible for managing, coaching, and developing a global team of IVD technical experts in his role as technical team manager. And our third panelist is Heike Mulig Zudermeister, also Vice President of IVD Intelligence and Innovation at RQM Plus. Heike also came to RQM Plus from BSI uh, even more recently in January 2022, where she held several leadership roles and now brings more than that 17 years of experience in design and development and regulatory affairs in the IVD industry to RQM Plus. And last last but not uh, not least, our moderator today, Lisa Kassaman. Lisa is Executive Vice President at RQM Plus, and she is also free to get the conversation underway. So, Lisa, please have at it.
1: Thanks. Hi, everyone. Um, this is a really exciting show because we have representation from two of the largest notified bodies in Europe, you know, XBSI with Heike and Carlos, who were leading figures in the IVDR um, designation for BSI, which was one of the first notified bodies to be designated under IVDR. And Marta, you know, technical director of TUV Sud, um, which was the notified body to issue the world's first IVDR certificate and co chair of the IVD Notified Body Working Group. So it's very exciting. Um, today, we're gonna structure things a little different than usual. So we'll reflect on lessons learned from the early stages of IVDR implementation. And then a little different from usual, we're gonna hold our questions until the second half. Um, so please submit your questions just like you always do, and I promise we will get to them shortly. So uh, first first question, just a little more on the speakers. How did you end up working in the diagnostic sector and what is your role Ben? You know, what was your role at the notified Body? So, can we start with you, Marta?
2: Sure. Uh, so, um, hello everyone. Um, so, how did I land in diagnostics? My very first job was actually uh, as a customer technical support for uh, an IVD uh, company. And that's where I discovered uh, the uh, diagnostics. Unfortunately, a few years ago, um, that's where I discovered the diagnostic world and the impact uh, uh, diagnostic have on the patients and uh, uh, on identifying, for example, disease early uh, identifies also um, appropriate uh, treatment. So I wanted to continue in this uh, field and from technical support, I moved into quality and uh, regulatory. Uh, aspects and then uh, um, in 2019 I joined Su really to uh, see a difference, see the regulation from a different uh, aspects uh, and uh, so I saw the manufacturer now I'm seeing the notified body perspective what the challenges are and also what different products I uh, believe uh, products uh, have in terms of uh, challenges. So now I've been with uh, suit uh, uh for two uh, years uh, and a half. So seeing this aspect, you already explained my role within uh, 2 suit
3: Oh, I think you're on mute, Lisa. Uh, I was the first
1: one, I never do that, never. <laughs> Thanks, Marta. How about you, Heike?
4: Um, so my my career, how I ended up in diagnostics, I have a classical academic career of a you know, PhD postdoc in the area cell biology and immunology. And then I started diving into industry in the life technology, circling around stem cell research and a small startup, which was quite amazing. So it took me a while until I really um, got to the point uh, to work in the diagnostic world. And um, so that was after the, my stem cell career. Uh, I dived into the diagnostic world and I was um, leading the research and development of um, some diagnostic companies here in Germany and um, had the first interaction with the regulatory aspects at the time. That was all ISO 1345 and the director, so the old world, so to say. And I ended up 2014 at BSI. On specific circumstances and multiple um, ways guided me to BSI and I have been very happy to take the chance to join BSI at that time and I started my regulatory career as a team manager and technical specialist and my last position was the technical team manager where I was leading um, an international team of technical specialists and team managers and um, the same as Carla's, we had started the IVDR implementation from scratch. So that was just a really um, interesting, challenging experience, really starting from scratch, submitting the application until we received two designations, obviously, from MHRA and IDJ at that time. So that's um,
1: Carlos?
3: I'll go, I'll go next. So I've, I've got a background uh, as a, a lead scientist for diagnostics. So I specialized in the fields of transfusion medicine and organ transplantation. So I've worked a lot with blo- um, uh, bone marrow transplants and liver transplants as well, but within the clinical side. So I worked within the national health system uh, in, in several of the major te- teaching hospitals in, in London. So you would typically find me working shifts, night shifts, close to the operating room, measuring uh, using diagnostics to measure like vital parameters during surgery, and actually um, making sure that before you get a blood transfusion or a transplant, the compatibility between donors and recipients uh, is established. So I did that for a number of years, and then joining BSI came a little bit out of the blue. uh, So I didn't know much about who bsi were. I knew they did C marking, but it was not um, uh, a company I was familiar because I was very much focused on the diagnostics field within pathology uh, and hospital environments but bSI at the time they were looking for someone to join as a technical expert for blood grouping devices, which under the directive, were some of the highest risk devices, so the least i a- under the previous direct, um, uh, IVD directive, and that was that fit really nicely at the time with my background because I had a specialization in transfusion medicine. That's where I dedicated most of my career within working within national. Uh, blood services in the UK and also within the hospital transfusion committees. So that's where, how I joined. So I started in a, in a similar... No, actually, I started as a QMS assessor. So I did a lot of um, uh, assessments to global companies, looking at ISO 13485, camd at the time for, for Canada, and also a little bit of md auditing for diagnostic companies. And then I joined um, for the past maybe six and a half years, uh, the technical team. Uh, at PSI in a similar position as ICA, first as a technical expert, then as a technical team manager, uh, managing a global team of, uh, of IVD experts, and I was also their first IVDR internal clinician, which was a, a new role under the regulation. Uh, and that's, yeah, so I've, similar to Heiko, we've been uh, living and breathing everything IVD for the past seven years, uh, making this transition from directive to the regulation, as uh, setting up all of the processes from the start, so that the notified body could actually uh, review uh, technical files under the, the regulation.
1: Thanks. It's always so interesting how just in regulatory in general, how varying our backgrounds are. So thanks for that. Um okay, next, notify body designation. You know, both TUV suit and BSI certify most medical devices and IVDs globally. Can you tell us more about that designation process and what that involves? You wanna start, Haika?
4: Um, yes, thank you. Um, so the designation process under the RBDR is quite heavy and it's a very lengthy process, and I think everyone acknowledges it's um it's a very lengthy process. So when we look back from the BSI experience, uh, we took around uh, two two years, twenty four months to get designated from the start. And the thing is there are now different um, stakeholders involved, which was not the case under the directive for. All. Um, so first of all, it's the Notified Body per se, that's clear. And then we have the um, National Competent Authority, who is there uh, from the Notified Body, who is the responsible authority to designate the Notified Body. Then we have the Commission um, and the MDCG Group, who's, um, who um, is a group of medical device experts or IVD experts in that sense for, for us to get IVDR designated. And we have a dedicated joint assessment team that is going um, to do and to conduct the on-site joint assessment audit. So, what is that joint assessment team?s So, the participants of that joint assessment team is first the national Com- the competent authority for the notified body, who is designating the notified body, and second, it's experts from the commission. And third, so there are also experts from other national uh, authorities, so it's quite a crowded group <laughs> that comes to the notified body um, on site um, and uh, performs a very, very very uh, thorough in-depth audit to verify if the notified body is set up compliant uh, to the RBR especially on the QMS side so it's all what is in the Annex seven of the IVDR and specific focus is laid on the competence uh, and qualification of the entire notified body um, employee or employee so it's not only the technical specialist but for sure there's the most scrutiny on it but it's also that you have a qualification program for the business development, for marketing, for everyone. So there needs to be also a high scrutiny on that entire qualification process. And how this joint assessment audit works is a little bit similar. Um, what manufacturers know when they are getting audited for as of 1345 or the notified body comes in to audit the directive or another regulation. So there will be a report and a list of findings, non-conformities, and that was the case um, with that entered as well. Uh, so I think there is no notified body out there with zero findings, but there are always findings, and then the notified body needs to, to react um, what the client knows, what the manufacturer knows out there. We need to prepare, or we did, um, we prepared a corrective action plan. That is going to be submitted to the um, competent authority for them from that notified body they review but that's not that's not it. So the national authority needs to provide um, their their input and needs to submit this collective action plan to the joint assessment team so to the entire joint assessment team. So multiple people look. Add plans, reports, give their input, and that all takes a lot of time. So there are defined timelines, but it's quite excessive. So um, around forty-five days for a review, and then they can extend, etc., etc. So it's really excessive, and that um, broadcast be BSI to twenty-four months to get designated under the RVR. And um, just one thing to um, to add here. So when the um, IVDR entries into force, May 2017, the notified body have not been allowed uh, to start to submit their IVDR application in the same for NDR. So there was a six month delay. And after these six months, the notified bodies have been allowed to submit the um, the, um, submission, the application submission. So six months plus 24 months. For BSI brings us to 30 months uh, designated as a notified body after uh, the IVDR entries into force. So it's quite excessive when we think of the overall five years, initial five years transition period.
3: Yeah. And I can just just to add to what you were saying, one of the things that that um, that is very comprehensive during that, the assessment is the scrutiny on the resources from the notified body perspective. So, when from a notified body uh, point of view, it makes sense to go for full scope designation because if you've got your full scope, uh, your designation with a full scope, you can then support every single uh, type of product out there that the manufacturer has. So from a notified body perspective, it makes strategic sense to apply for a full scope designation. But the audit of that full scope from the joint assessment group uh, team that Heike was referring to is very rigorous, and that's the, they, they, are going, they are auditing against an actual regulation, so there's a regulation that defines the coding system Uh, that notified bodies um, uh, apply for the coding that reflects specific aspects of the device, such as the design and intended purpose, uh, which are your uh, IVR codes, but also uh, specific characteristics around these devices, such as your self tests your near-patient tests, your companion diagnostics. But it also extends to the technologies and the examination procedures of the IVD. So, for example, immunoassays, um, flow cytometry, Molecular biology, NGS, and all of that. So, all of this code system that forms the basis of the qualification of the notified body product reviewers. And that's what we are, we were not anymore we were audited against uh, at the notified body uh, so against a very comprehensive matrix that defines our expertise and knowledge uh, in in the in the field of uh, design manufacturing use of these ivds so we'll, uh, the, the the assessment process itself there's a lot of scrutiny on the resources that the notified body employs. So there'll be, there will be interviews, they will be looking at our CVs, at, um, at our backgrounds, and then interviewing us to understand what is our level of expertise, to approve a certain type of type of device uh, within that code system that I that I talked about. So there's a lot of scrutiny uh, in that sense. So it's a very comprehensive uh, process that could ultimately end up in limitations of that scope. So you may have, for example, uh, the joint assessment team may decide that the notified body is not competent or does not have the, the, the required resources. To assess all of the cancer type assays and limit to only certain types of cancer, or they can decide that they they're not giving a specific codes to a notified body, and for example, you're not allowed to do blood grouping assays, and therefore that notified that notified body is then not uh, is not going to be able to support those types of clients until they 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 are designated for that particular scope. So the scope is really important, and there's a lot of scrutiny on the notified body side to understand what 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 personnel they've got and what their qualifications are. Uh, and that's why it's such a cumbersome process. Uh, and when you're thinking at, at, for, on it from a perspective of how long it takes a notified body to be qualified, it's something to take into account that it's not an easy process to get through the, that qualification. And I think Martha, am I'm, I'm I'm sure you've got some some ideas on TUFSUD and your experience from TUFSUD as well. Doing yes, this.
0: indeed.
2: I just wanted to to comment on that. Indeed, the availability of resources of qualified resources with relevant expertise, as you said, for each code notified body code is uh, critical now the IVDR uh, expanded the number of and the type of devices that uh, require uh, a notified body um, uh, approval or involvement in the conformity assessment process so uh, this prompted the notified body to expand their uh, um, resources not only because there were more devices but there was also new expertise that was uh, required. For example, a lot of the clinical chemistry uh, assays that uh, are um, routinely used for, I would say, general uh, testing of the population, were self-declared under the uh, IVD directive, but are now becoming uh, um, class B, or in some cases, also class uh, uh, class C for um, uh, some of the devices. So these were not part of the uh, original, I would say, portfolio, directive, uh, product portfolio of the notified body. So that involved uh, um, ex- including or hiring uh, people with a new, uh, with different expertise than to what uh, uh, notified body had uh, before. Uh, So the resources of each notified body have been expanded because uh, expectation is that for at least uh, for each code you are applying for, you have at least a minimum of uh, uh, two experts uh, available and uh, that have um, the uh, required uh, expertise for that uh, given code so uh, the increase has been significant and the team um, recently published a survey on a notified body and if you had the opportunity to Uh, look at it. Uh, It's available on the TMNB uh, website. Uh, There is also a a slide on the increase of resources for the notified bodies. This is general, not specific uh, to IVD, but includes both medical devices and IVDs. And there you can see that for the last uh, 11 years, uh, the resources have been uh, uh, increasing. When I joined uh, TUSUD, it was uh, uh, in quarter four of 2019, um, IVD experts were around 80 people globally. And now we are, just to give an idea of the expansion, we are now. Uh, more than uh, 120 uh, worldwide, mostly in uh, in Germany, but also in uh, uh, other countries and other regions other than uh, than Europe. So yes, quite a quite a challenge um, to for well, for stakeholders, but specifically for notified bodies in this case.
1: So moving over to the manufacturing challenges, or I guess this is a challenge for you guys too, with with only seven notified bodies designated so far as compared to 22 under IVDD um, capacity issues, seem to be ongoing. You know, We at RQM Plus have seen several manufacturers unable to secure a notified body. So do you think there's a light at the end of the tunnel? Do you see changes coming? What do you think, Marta?
2: So um, as we said, the designation process uh, is um, is longer, and like explained, it involves several steps. Seven notified bodies now completed uh, those uh, uh, those steps, and there are two or more that are in the process of uh, being um, designated. Uh, now. Uh, there are a lot of uh, efforts that are going on at uh, the notified body association team, uh, team NB in terms of, um, um, I would say, help with the implementation of the uh, IVDR. For example, um, we have we run uh, several trainings. Some are specific to IVDs. Uh, example, to technical documentation assessment, other can be general and apply to both IVD and uh, medical devices. So there is a big training effort, uh, but we also have uh, a working group uh, of a notified body where uh, it's an opportunity for us to discuss and align on uh, um, unclear issues I would say for example it could be um, a doubt with the use of a specific notified body code or it can be um, out about the classification of the product. Of course, confidentiality is always respected, it's really um, in a discussion, a technical uh, discussion and these uh, in this discussion, both designated and notified body that are in the process of being designated are involved and participate and uh, uh, bring their input to to the discussion. So there, uh, I would say behind the scenes, uh, there is a lot of work that is being done uh, from notified bodies together to facilitate and um, the implementation of uh, the ABDR.
3: Yeah. And also, Marta, just to say the Commission, they also publish these regular updates on the status of notified body applications that you were were talking about before. So it's quite interesting. If you look at the Commission website, you will find uh, that what Marta was saying we've got seven IVDR notified bodies that are designated and available in the Nando uh, website. They also publish this list of how notified bodies that have applied are progressing through the, the application process. So, so, similar to what Marta was saying, 12. Notified bodies under the IVDR have received um, uh, uh, joint assessments from 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 the assessment team so there's two potential notified bodies coming up soon so there's two that uh, that are at this stage of kappa review so hopefully we've seen i think uh, uh, last month uh, the last the, the seventh notified body the three c notified body in Slovakia. Being designated so there's two behind them uh, which are at this stage of the Kappa review uh, process within the their the assessment um, of notified bodies so I think it's it's it is work in progress but at the same time uh, I'm not I don't think anyone knows the extent of the issue of, of the relation whether this is going to be um, Really, if the resources that are are, are going to be available are are actually going to be able to tackle the challenge that we've got ahead. And that's because unlike the MDD, from moving from MDD to MDR, where there's not a lot of new, new devices that need a certificate, the IVDR uh, untaps this world of 90% of devices out there that now potentially need a certificate under the IVDR and it's not very clear how many how much of that that uh, how, uh, how much of a, a an effort this is because there's no oversight of those certificates because they're non-existing under the directive so all of them are well the majority of them were self declared so it's very difficult to measure How many certificates are going to be needed under the IVDR. So I think, uh, yes, there's lots of efforts from the Commission in terms of monitoring, and I think notified bodies are doing an excellent work uh, with training like uh, Marta talked about. Uh, And I think there's still this concern whether there's going to be sufficient notified bodies to tackle the the huge challenge ahead, just because we we only know what we know and uh, and i don't think it's it's still at this point visible the amount of certificates that will need to be generated over the next the next few years so i think watch this space but light at the end of the tunnel i'm not sure but it's going to be better than it was now hopefully <laughs>
4: Yes, absolutely. I just uh, thank you, uh, Carlos and Marta. I just want to follow up here. So, I think uh, w- what we all know, we don't know the, um, the number of certificates that might be needed now under the IVDR. But what we know uh, from the MedTech Europe survey, so that was last September, but at least there was a very high percentage um, of manufacturers um, that have no notified body. A contract yet in their hands, and uh, when they follow the LinkedIn and other uh, social media sites, conferences, etc., etc. So there is still um, a significant uh, percentage of manufacturers out there which have no notified body contract, and the transitional provisions are so much needed. And we are all happy that finally in January these came out, and the manufacturer have a little bit of relief. Uh, what I wanted to say to to everyone, um, the bottleneck for the notified body, personally, I I think that um, there will I don't have much hope here. Sorry, Marta, but coming from notified body, then how to tackle uh, all these new devices? How to get these reviewed class? Now the surveillance kicks in. Um, you have to review the notified body, the SSPs. Um, You do sampling on the class Cs, generic groups on the class B subcategories. So it's just a crazy amount of workload that just kicks in on the surveillance side on top of it. And um, also maybe just um, interesting for the audience out there, the qualification process inside the notified body for a technical specialist just takes around two years or so, uh, or could be a little bit Quicker could be longer, it just depends. Um, so it's a long, long, long journey for um, new hires at the notifier body that they can run alone and do their reviews um, on their own. Um, so th- this is another thing where the notifier bodies really struggle, and um, it's it's a it's a great effort for all notifier bodies to get there and to educate and to qualify these new hires. Um, However, as as I think all knows, when there's a rapid scale up in resources and you have uh, a a significant amount of new hires, it has challenges. Um, But potentially, you see then as well as a manufacturer that you think, oh my goodness, I wait for my responses, what is going on, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, the notified body internally, they struggle as well to get everyone up to speed. Um, That's by nature, it's not really there. Their fault just um, <laughs> to defend the Nodiva body site here, and uh, this finger pointing is not helpful at all. Uh, we just need um, we just, just sit all in the same boat, and uh, we need to get ready as quick as possible. Another important note I wanted to add: Marta mentioned the Nodiva body survey um, that was done in October, and it's now it's published in May. I think Marta, correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, for um, Yeah, thanks on the um, NBMAT website, and it's very interesting, but one thing particular for the IBD manufacturers out there, so there was um, a survey at the notified Body, and there was a question um, how a percentage, though they should say, how many files a percentage um, are refused at that completeness check stage? So the completeness check is, where the notified body is doing an administrative screen if the technical submission is complete. It's not a conformity assessment work. It's not a technical documentation review. It's just purely a check if the, te- is the technical documentation complete. And the notified body has responded that almost 50% um, of these completeness checks are not successful and that um, the manufacturer needs to go back and to do some homework and to resubmit them. And that's really significant because it postpones the notified body review significantly. And I just can encourage all manufacturers out there, try to get um, a seat with your notified body. Um, if you are not able to get a contract signed as app or in the next month, get ready as compliant as possible. Um, that you don't have these struggles at the completeness check side as well. So it's really important, although you don't have a contract with an audit body in your hand, get ready with the technical documentation and uh, with the QMS, very important.
1: So building on what Heiko was saying about the completeness check, let's, let's talk about the application process in more detail. Um, we're finding that a lot of manufacturers are struggling with this process um probably more than they expected to uh so can you tell us some of the main issues that notified bodies are are seeing carlos yeah we'll
3: i can you. I, I can start i can start with that one so it's a, it's a good point Liz. i think the application process so no one really envisaged how complicated this was going to be under the ivdr but what the ivdr has done was introduce a very complex uh, application process for ivds so that can take several months to complete, and that's even before you can get a quote signed with your notified body. And the more devices you've got on on your portfolio, the more complex uh, that it gets. So when you're looking for um, a notified body, and just a piece of advice for, for manufacturers, you will need to understand what their scope is, because some notified bodies will have a limited scope, so they may not be able to cover all of your portfolio, as we've discussed uh, earlier. So you'll also need to be thinking about their availability and the expected timeline. So something to take into account. But when you're working on that application process, you'll need to submit a number of documents to the notified body. So they're called pre-application documents. So that's you know, that includes drafts of your declarations of conformity, your quality manual. It includes a sample of your performance evaluation plan, some, some samples of your procedures for PMS. So all of that will need to be IVDR compliant or at least as ready as it can be at the point of application. And that's because the notified body is required under the IVDR to verify that a manufacturer has made all efforts to transition at the point of application. So you cannot go to a notified body if your quality systems are not up to an IVDR level. So it's very important to sort that out before you actually establish a contract with a notified body so once you you submit your application then you'll need to be providing a lot of information on uh, on your devices so that involves uh, your intended purpose the rules that were established for the classification of the device what the codes are as they are applicable to each device and that alone It is a um, a significant uh, amount of effort because it's a very complex coding system, like we've touched uh, on before. But you also need to to be providing information on your subcontractors, on your quality management system sites. So if you've got different sites, a campus with different locations for design, manufacturing, product uh, verification, that sort of stuff. All of that information needs to be sent to the notified body at the application stage. And there's a lot, typically a lot of back and forth between the notified body and the manufacturer to make sure that the um, the application is as complete as possible before a quote can be issued. Because the notified body will need to understand what is the scope of your devices. They will need to do verification checks to make sure that they are um, they've got the right expertise to, to, to do the reviews for your devices and it can take anything between one to six months just to get that quote issued so that's even before you can start technical file reviews uh, for for approval of your product portfolio so I think the message is if you're transitioning to the IVDR make sure you account for at least three to six months for this application process to go through and just think that this is even before you can get your technical files reviewed, because for that, that will take you potentially another year and even more if if the review of your devices depends on um, external uh, agents as well, like the European Medicines agent or the performance evaluation uh, consultation procedure by expert panels. So those are things that you'll need to think about, because they will eat into your timeline. And even though, like Heike mentioned, we have these new transitional provisions under the IVDR, when you actually lay out uh, what they mean in practice with all these timelines of notified body reviews and the reviews of um, uh, of technical files and the application process as well, you'll see that the timeline quickly becomes a lot smaller than than you anticipated. So just something to, to think, to take into account. Yeah,
4: thank you, Carlos. Um, and I follow on. <laughs> Uh, what I said, get ready, and that's the same for the pre-application process with the notified body. So Carlos mentioned um, a lot of documents, uh, information, data, how the manufacturer need to provide to the notified body before uh, the notified body is able to issue a quote. And what is the most complexing thing, and Carlos touched that, and uh, Marta mentioned that as well, is the codes, the IVDR codes. So we have had around 20 under the in the directive rules, and now we have 80 in the regulation world. So it's really um, a lot of codes. And um, the Nodifa body expects that the manufacturer assigns these codes as good as applicable. Um, and uh, please keep in mind, you as a manufacturer, it's your sole responsibility um, that the codes you're assigning are Correct. So the notification will review, but it's the manufacturer's um, sole responsibility to do so. The coding system is so uh, important. Um, coming back to the intended purpose, because the coding system, some codes, specific codes are used to group devices if they are generic class, Cs, class C groups or subcategory class B groups. So not companion diagnostics, not class B, not, peer tech, not near not patient test devices and not self-testing devices. So these can't be grouped. Each single uh, device of that cohort needs to be audited and reviewed by the modifier body. So there, unfortunately, there is no way out. So there's no sampling allowed. But for the other, for these generic groups, you need to have uh, for the class uh, B's the IVR codes um, read, um, as correct and uh, combined and this um, reflects the intended purpose of your device and you group based on that IVR code your class B group. It could be a quite massive group, it could be just one device, it just depends on your product portfolio Um, and on the the group of devices you have. So if if you are um, supplying uh, devices in the hematology area only, for instance, you might just have one group, class B, and potentially another class C group. So this could happen. But if you have different applications in your uh, product portfolio, clinical, um, general clinical chemistry, hematology, infectious diseases, genetic diseases, Etc. Etc. So you end up with a lot of codes here, and to assign these particular codes um, correct is important because the notified body they review, they assess it, they evaluate, they back and forth, they have questions, and finally you will confirm on a, on on the codes you have um, assigned, and then the notified body issues a, a quote um, based on the number of families of for class B and C's you have assigned uh, with your specific codes and if this is not accurate then this could happen that in the uh, formal application process as so the notified body sort of quote aside and then the notified body takes it and um, they um, they do their Uh, internal application process and put everything in the database, schedule audits, QMS audits, schedule technical documentation audits, assign resources, um, verify if your information is accurate. So this could end up um, that potentially an additional group is needed um, when the codes have been not assigned correct and that you need to have an additional quote uh, for another technical documentation sample review of that uh, group. Um, Which again takes resources, takes money, and um, you're a little bit back in the queue because uh, that was not anticipated initially and uh, potentially you need to wait until you can submit your technical documentation for that new group as example. So it's really important to be um, as ready and as accurate as possible in that stage as well, especially on that coding system and I appreciate it's complicated to do so. And Marta, I think you have yes, um, if more I on that. <laughs>
2: if, I, if I may add uh, one comment on the Requirements to identify the various sites and subcontractors involved in the manufacturing process. That's also something that should be clearly identify that application and also then in the technical documentation um, it's clearly stated that uh, uh, these sites if they are involved in the manufacturing process they should be clearly listed and they may also be audited by uh, the notified body as part of the certification process so it's really key to identify those uh, um, I would say, external partners uh, uh, involved in uh, the um, in, in the manufacturing process of uh, uh, the the device.
1: So, I'm going to insert just one uh, audience question here since we're um, in the last half. So, Carlos, how about you answer this one? Um, how can we be compliant as much as we can if the notified bodies do not know yet how to be compliant?
3: Um, that's a good point. So I think, they, it, so the Notified Bodies, uh, Mar- Marty's part of these, they have a Notified Body Working Group where they're trying to align on, on expectations. So one way one way of that, that actually happening is through the MDCG guidance documents that are being published. And we've seen a lot of MDCG guidance documents published very recently that align on the expectation or expectations of what is required in the regulation. Now, it's guidance. It's not the law. The law is the, the, the IVDR, but those MDCG guidance documents they serve as well as a way of aligning across notified bodies on the expectations. But I so certainly I think you will always see some level of difference between notified bodies as much as that they, they try to be consistent. I know that not all notified bodies will always work in a similar way, but I think that's that there's a lot of efforts in that sense to try to align on the notified body expectations. And I'm sure, Marta, you might have some some views as well as to what's happening uh, in terms of that alignment of expectations across notified bodies.
2: Yes, I would uh, absolutely agree. We we do our best to align. Of course, our reference is the regulatory requirements for the IVDR and the CG guidance are not legally binding but they are there. Uh, and uh, also, there is a overall expectations that they would be implemented by notified body and uh, um, and manufacturers. We are different companies, so there might be some uh, uh, differences. But uh, the I would say <laughs> implementation of uh, the IVDR requirements, we. Uh, try to be as consistent as possible, also uh, what uh, may be helpful, there are some um, um, expectation documents, if we can call them like this, that are, have been published by some notified bodies and are available on uh, their uh, each notified body website, so publicly uh, available.
1: Thank you. Um, So let's talk about conformity assessment. Now, once the manufacturer completes their application, what are the next steps, and how long will it take before the file, you know, gets reviewed, and they could expect a certificate? Um, Heike, could you just like give us the highlights on the steps, and I think people are most interested in the timeline.
4: Yes, absolutely. So it's um, two aspects, or it's a dual dual process, dual step process. The conformity um, assessment. Process. So it's the QMS audit, the IBDR QMS audit, and the technical documentation review. So you always need to have an IBDR QMS audit. And to highlight, it's not a gap audit against uh, 1345, it's an own individual standalone IBDR QMS audit. Um, I know there have been always some concerns um, about that, but this is the case, and the Nodica body need to follow that. It's not um, that they want to do it, it's law. Um, so once the everything is signed, everything is set up in the, uh, at the notifier body side. Resources are um, allocated internally at the notifier body for the QMS audit um, and also for the technical documentation review. So when the technical documentation review starts. Um, it's it's depending so I think everybody, everybody potentially has a little bit of different uh, process and different services so at VSI we have had services called dedicated or still have uh, dedicated and standard so the dedicated services there is the expectation that uh, the te- technical documentation review starts as quick as possible um, when the manufacturer is able to submit the technical documentation so hence when the technical do, uh, when the manufacturer is saying they submit um so they sign today and they say okay uh, we submit end of june then it will be anticipated that a buffer of two weeks the notify body is going to start and review but that 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 could vary um amongst um and also on the workload of the notify body so it's that's best case scenario it could it could be a month later so it really depends on the workload and also on the um resources at the not body, depending on the codes, again, we are back with the codes. so if it's um a niche product, for instance um, I say a companion diagnostic, then potentially um the recruiting is not um as high as for other uh, devices as clinical chemistry because that's just the majority of devices out there um then there, there could be a delay, right so case scenario two weeks and uh, the entire process could take a year um, until the certificate is issued so the technical documentation review with three question rounds allowed plus the QMS um, audit so it could be a year
2: yeah and Heike uh, if I may uh, add to that so from, from suit's perspective the approach is uh, uh, is similar, and in terms of timing indeed it depends on uh, the availability of the experts uh, uh if they are available readily available or uh if they need to finish uh, the assessment of previous uh, um received uh, um, uh, Technical documentations, so that can uh, play a role. We generally agree on a plan with the customers as to when they will uh, are likely to submit, for example, a technical documentation for um, a given uh, file. And yes, the certification could take uh, up to one year. It really depends on the product type on the number of questions we have so Mm -hmm. of course if we get uh, a technical documentation where everything uh, meets the requirement and we have uh, no follow-up question that will be faster than if we have to use the three rounds of of questions also uh, there are some uh, specific devices that would take a little bit longer um um, for example the companion diagnostics uh, those uh, um, will uh, involve uh, a consultation with uh, the european medicine agency which uh, would normally uh, happen towards the end so when uh, uh, we as notified body have reviewed the the documentation the customer provided uh, and are happy to Request the um, uh, the consultation, so that can take uh, uh, up to two times 60 days. Or so uh, it could result to additionally, potentially addition for additional uh, months.
1: A question from the audience, uh, from Marta: How are you dealing with virtual manufacturers?
2: Uh, do you, you mean uh, when uh, um, uh, when other manufacturers, like in NOEM, in in, is uh, uh, involved in this certification? Um, we, asked, we asked for clarification
1: and you didn't offer any, so we can skip it if the question doesn't make sense. Um, we'll
4: yeah, skip it. Yeah, potentially one that and later then you can continue, so I think the virtual manufacturer, but Maybe we receive a response from from the audience here it's more that um so the legal manufacturer is physically doing nothing so then mm. everything is outsourced so the design the manufacturing etc cetera, etc cetera, and they they're more an administrative entity so to say and the entire um product specific stuff is done elsewhere by another manufacturer I think that's I do hope that this is what is meant
2: Uh, Indeed, in in that case, uh, uh, it's still the legal manufacturer that has the full responsibility of uh, the product. So uh, they need, for example, to have availability of all the documentation of the product. They need to ensure there is quite a tight uh, control on those manufacturers, because at the end of the day, what the regulations clearly state is the legal manufacturer so the company that has the name of their labeling uh, that uh, of the device labeling that is responsible for that device so uh, they need to have uh, uh, the documentation they need to ensure the product meets the requirement of the EVDR
3: yeah and i think just one one, one note one thing that we found typically with virtual manufacturers is that so usually all of the activities so if it's a purely virtual manufacturer where you've got an office and then all of the activities are done by a third party the the key thing there is that this third party so the the virtual manufacturer needs to show control of this third party so the the third party site that manufactures or does the design So the responsibility, as Marta says, still fall within that virtual manufacturer if they are the name on the label of the product. So even though they be virtual, they still fall within this interpretation of a legal manufacturer under the regulation. And they need to adhere to all of the, the steps as if they were the physical manufacturer of those devices. So they need to have full control of the technical file all of that needs to be under their control. They need to submit that to their, to the notified body under their name. So they'll need access to design information, to manufacturing information, as if they were a, 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 a real, not a real, they're real manufacturer, <laughs> but as if they were a physical, non-virtual manufacturer. Yeah.
1: Okay. So let's move on to technical documentation. Um, what are some of the biggest gaps and lessons learned you've had when reviewing tech docs? Uh, Carlos?
3: I'll, I'll start with that one. So, so that's, I think the number one gap, so that's that's actually a really good question, because it's, it's something that we get very often, and we, at least at RQM Plus, we've been talking a lot about these. But the number one gap is performance evaluation. So almost half of all of the files that we, we saw at the time, both me and Heike, uh, at PSI, they had issues with uh, performance evaluation, and specifically clinical performance, and the clinical performance report that's required under the, the IVDR. So I think that's one of the most common gaps, and the gap really is, um, and it's 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 a really basic thing, but it's something that almost, you know, not all, but a lot of manufacturers out there they get wrong, is the use of the sources to demonstrate clinical performance. And I've I've had loads of discussions with ICA about these that we, we tend to see these very very often uh, as an issue is about what sources are being used to demonstrate clinical performance under the the IVDR. So the IVDR allows for three main sources. That's your peer-reviewed literature, your clinical performance studies, and your published experience from routine diagnostic testing. So ideally, you should have clinical performance studies done under the IVDR. What we tend to see very often is manufacturers presenting um, data to the notified body on clinical performance studies, so studies that were conducted pre-IVDR that do not meet the requirements of Annex 13 2.3, and they call them clinical performance studies, when they cannot be called clinical performance studies because they were done pre-IVDR, and they would not, at least most of them, they don't meet the requirements of Annex uh, 13 Section 2.3 for a clinical performance study. So all those studies, they need to be submitted as other sources of clinical data, not as clinical performance studies, because then the notified body will come back with findings on the sources you've selected, for clinical performance. So I think that's one of the number one gaps uh, that we see. Also on, I think, clinical performance and performance evaluation, near-patient tests are particularly problematic, uh, mostly around the definition of the profile of the users. So near-patient tests are used uh, at the point of care. So people call them point of care, near-patient tests. So the IVDR term is near-patient test. And what's often missing is the definition of the profile of the users that are going to use that device. So, what are they? Are they are they to be used in an ambulance, in an helicopter, by a nurse? Are they to be used by a doctor at the bedside, in an emergency room? So all of that information is required for the submission and there and then that will need to link to the usability studies that are conducted with these individuals. And we, we tend to see a lot of gaps in how these usability studies are conducted and on the definition of the actual profile of these users, because manufacturers, they typically... They've got good data, but they, they're not good at telling the story to the notified body in a way that it makes sense and it's coherent between your usability studies, the population that's going to use your device, and how do you close the loop between uh, between those two. Um, so that those are some of the most frequent gaps I've seen.
2: And if I may add to that, you mentioned uh, the availability of data there is also one other aspect is the consistency of how those data are presented and also the consistency of the intended purpose of the device between the performance evaluation uh, report for example and the instructions for users taking the example of the intended purpose, it should be stay the same between the IFUs uh, and uh, uh, the performance uh, evaluation uh, report. And of course, there should be also consistency mm-hmm. in the data and uh, target, uh, target users of, uh, of that uh, device. In other aspects uh, that uh, can um, place questions is the use of symbols. Uh, So a few months ago, the harmonized uh, ISO standard for uh, uh, symbols was, uh, well, the standard was already published, but the fact that it was harmonized was uh, Mm -hmm. was, uh, published. So that came with no uh, transition uh, period so it's uh, it's applicable now it contains uh, um, a lot of symbols that uh, uh, have to be used and uh, it's a quite a specific uh, situation with the standard because usually the use of standards is uh, a choice uh, of the manufacturer but in this specific instance the wording of the regulation Makes it a kind of exception makes it mandatory to to use the symbols that are available in the standards when they are applicable to the device in question, of course, so uh, that is also something that needs to be taken into account, and then the other aspects also Thinking about data value available in uh, the um, technical file and in the, the instructions for we'll use are stability data. So there are requirements um, uh, available in the regulation, how stability should be conducted, number of lots, etc. There are also some uh, uh, guidelines that are available, not MDCG, in this case, uh, more uh, CLSI guidance, for example, uh, that are available to uh, support the manufacturer and those are also data that must be included uh, in the technical file and then a summary in uh, the uh, instructions for use
1: okay so we' we're, we'll do one more question we're a little over time here um, so if it's okay we'll just do one more um, for class Td devices we are not aware that en- We are not aware that any uh, IVDR certificates have been issued yet for the high-risk devices. Um, So when can we expect the first one to be issued? What do you think, Marta?
2: So, difficult to give a timeline, but I can tell uh, uh, you that the notified body are accepting Class-D applications and conformity assessment for um, uh, Class-D devices and uh, they have been uh, doing so since the expert panel became operational. Why we were not doing that before? It's because there is a requirement in the regulation that uh, if you receive uh, a conformity assessment for a novel uh, uh, class D device, uh, where novel is one that was not certified before and for which there are no common specifications, you have to consult uh, and the expert panel, the IBD expert panel, and the notified body have five days to do so, since they receive uh, from the moment they receive the performance evaluation report from the for that device. So it's a very uh, well defined <laughs> timeline. And until September last year, the expert panel for IVDs was not operational. It has uh, early in September; it has become operational. And uh, to date, uh, there are about 15 um, uh, consultations that have been uh, completed. The views are publicly available on the Commission website. So, uh, notified bodies are uh, progressing with the conformity assessment, and uh, once here, once again, we are working as under the team TMB uh, and MBCG meta umbrella to align ourselves because one important. Uh, aspects of the conformity assessment of class D would be the uh, assessment by the uh, European Reference Lab. Now these are not have not been designated uh, as of to date uh, so notified body are um, working together to define a high-level framework of how to not only to certify that's in progress but also then to ensure the uh, lock-to-lock verification of uh, the devices once they have been uh, verified so hopefully it won't be long before we'll see the first certificates uh, for class d
1: that's great news okay so to to wrap it up today you know it's obvious that the requirements have shifted greatly from ivdd to ivdr this is a a big challenge for the industry. Do you have any final recommendations for our audience as they prepare for IVDR? Heike, you want to go first?
4: Yeah, I speak to what I was saying now multiple times. Um, the manufacturer, if they are with a notified body or if they are not with a notified body, um, try to get uh, guidelines from the notified bodies, look at their website um, to have an understanding of the expectation. If you need to Uh, through the support, uh, reach out to Acquion Plus or you are free to reach out to uh, whatever uh, consultancy uh, you might think of. I think all help, it can be internally, externally, is needed because um, you need to get ready as quick as possible. The time is running. You have the five years transitional provisions only for Class Ds. The time is kicking until May 25 and we have now heard from ATA. Um that there are additional stakeholders involved, the expert panel view, um the EU reference priorities whenever they are designated. that all takes time as an add on to the potentially worst case scenario issuing a certificate after one year. An onlyfer body has done the conformity assessment work um and also if you have a companion diagnostic, we have the National Competent Authorities for Medicinal Products or the EMA involved, another stakeholder beating up your time, get ready um, not only on the technical documentation and the QMS side, that's for sure, but also get ready with your entire information, data um, that you need to submit to the notified body to receive a quote, because that's your door opener. be, just be ready and push the 95 bodies as good as you can to get a seat. Carlos?
3: Yeah, I think, you know, just st- stating with, uh, restating with like I said, I think, you know, just make sure you, you reach out for help if needed. I think from our experience, we've seen a lot of companies that have tried, attempted to do it themselves, uh, just to find out and receive pushback from notified bodies when they submitted as first files. So make sure you don't lose any time because there's no time available. So I think any external help from people that have done it before. Uh, is welcomed and we've seen that being done successfully with with several clients and i think as like i said the message message is really act if you haven't done it so act now because there's no sufficient time available so we cannot uh, encourage that message anymore
2: marga and um, yeah if i may add to that uh, once you achieve the ivdr certification it's uh, the journey is not finished yet because then surveillance uh, uh, will uh, will start, and the surveillance uh, will involve the, will involve uh, um, uh, monitoring of uh, technical documentation, for example, for Class B and Class C, we will be doing reviewing a sample of technical uh, documentation file. After certification across all the certification cycle, but there will also be um, reviews of documents such as uh, the summary uh, for safety and performance. Uh, uh, There will be uh, audits announced and unannounced uh, uh, as well. So, and of course, this audit can be of the manufacturer premises, but also of subcontractor or side, as we said before, uh, other companies that are involved in uh, the, um, for example, in the manufacturing process of the device. So, um, there is the first effort to do the uh, initial certification, but don't forget, there will be surveillance uh, starting immediately after that.
1: Okay, thank you. That's it for today. Thanks so much, guys. Back to you, Steve.
0: Yeah, thanks for attending, everybody. Uh, today, Carlos and Heike, thank you for c- contributing so much to today's conversation. And Marta, special thanks to you for joining us and sharing your current Notified Body perspective. Uh, all registrants will receive an email with the recording by tomorrow. And as usual, the episode will be published to our Device Advice podcast by early next week. Our next RKM Plus live show, uh, it hasn't been formally announced yet, but the one after it has, and we definitely want to mention it because I think it's relevant to most folks here, uh, or many folks here. On July 14th, we'll be covering the regulatory landscape of companion diagnostics in the EU. Uh, Carlos and Heike will be back for that session. Uh, They'll be joined by TUV Rhineland Companion Diagnostic Team Lead, Rolf Thurman. Uh, Rolf is also the leader of the Notified Body Companion Diagnostic Working Group, Uh, so we're thrilled he'll be sharing his firsthand knowledge and experience with us. Uh, I shared a link to register for that in the webinar chat earlier, but you can also visit the Knowledge Center at rqmplus.com to register for that. So I'll keep the ending short. Thanks again for attending everybody today, and we hope to see you at another event soon.
1: Thank you, bye-bye. Bye.
0: Bye. Thank you all, bye-bye.